Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, good morning. Sunday morning or getting to the afternoon, getting to the noon, uh, here in snowy Baltimore, middle of another snow business. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, today's, I'm going to do something a little bit different today. Today's uh, uh, podcast, historical one, is being sponsored by the Rotenbergs, by uh, Ruth Rotenberg and her sister uh, Rachel, in uh, memory of uh, her daughter, uh, Tanielle Gavreya Margalit. Recently had, just the other day, had the uh, 16th yard site. That'd be on 23 spot, which is a few days ago. I'm going to talk about something today, I hope, which was uh, on 22 spot, right then and there. And she was, and she wrote, Ruth wrote to me, she said that uh, Tanyel had a uniquely intimate connection with Hashem, especially for a young person. Uh, her life was short, 18 years old. Well, in fact, was reasons for mitzvahs. So, uh, pay tribute to her memory. I hope our de- uh, what we say today will be as good for Elias Neshama. And with that, we proceed. I uh, appreciate the sponsorship. I don't have any other sponsors for the rest of the week. So, we'll see how that turns out. Um, but we do for today. And let me proceed. Usually, I do a, a bio of somebody. Uh, today, I'm going to do something a little bit different. Simply because, since I see that uh, Tanyel Gavre and Margalit's... Uh, the art was 20, 23 Shvat. It made me remember something. I'm going to do something for ancient history now. On 22 Shvat. The Purim is around the corner. We just have Pesach. And perhaps some of you, many of you know that there's an old text called Megillus Tainus. Megillus Tainus. And Megillus Tainus is a list of days which they weren't supposed to fast. But in other words, days when positive things happened to the Jewish people in the Second Temple period. Uh, the halacha is we no longer uh, practice this so when they have a certain day such as the other day the other week uh, 22 uh, Shvat so we no longer say that's a day you're not allowed to fast and things like that but of course in this day and age I haven't heard of too many people who are interested in fasting beyond that which is required matter of fact the opposite and you've in the rabbi business whenever it comes to Tainus I always get a thousand phone calls and emails everybody's looking for a way out that's how it goes these days but um, having said that, uh, let me say that whew, once upon a time, these were practiced. Now, the modern equivalent would be you don't say Tachna on that day. We don't even follow that. But they're there. In other words, this, I'm reading to you from a, I'm referring to Gilles Tinus, which is a book. It's a very small book, a small text that was published before the Mishnah. That's a long time ago, baby. And Kabbalah before the Gemara. The Gemara quotes from the Megillus Tinus on many occasions. Now, uh, many of the dates in Megillus Tinus are connected with Maccabean Wars. By the way, Purim is in there. That's just very interesting. Hanukkah, of course. But the holiday of Hanukkah, holiday of Purim. But in addition to that, there's a whole bunch of other dates, not all of which, but most of which, many of which, 
have to do with the Maccabean Wars, with victories by Judah Maccabee and stuff like that over the Greeks or his brothers or their successors, the Hasmonees, the Hashmonim, when they conquered the territory, because what the Hashmonim did was reconquer the ancient Israel uh, through military means. And uh, sometimes it's stuff from the Roman times as well, such as what I want to talk about today. Okay, we have a very remarkable passage. Uh, the incident that we commemorated in Miguel's time just the other day, the day before the yard site in 22 Shvat, is basically what we call, is something that you cannot understand what's flying unless you know the ancient history. And it's not that hard to, to pick out the ancient history. It's a wonderful example of triangulation and has to do with Caligula, the Roman Emperor Caligula, uh, who is a, whose name is corrupted in the rabbinical literature, but nevertheless, he's a very well-known person. Now, therefore, we're taking today something I usually don't do, ancient Jewish history. When you talk about um, periodization in Jewish history, it's like the biblical era, that's one tkufa, and then the next period, what roughly what you and I call Baishani, uh, is called ancient Judaism, when it was the Greeks and the Romans. First, the Greeks were in charge of the, of the eastern part of the Mediterranean, or the successors of Alexander and the Macedonian dynasties, but eventually Rome took over everything, Rome. In the beginning, Rome was a republic, but by the time they encountered the Jews, by, in other words, by the time the Roman armies reached the Middle East, the Roman Republic was in a crisis because uh, it was slowly being replaced with a dictatorship. It's a long and complicated story. I don't want to get into it, other than to say that the first Roman who took over, who conquered the land of Israel, Judea, and captured the base of Mish, although he did not destroy it, was Pompey. the famous Pompey the Great, who seized the temple um, in a notorious incident. In other words, again, I don't want to get bogged down too many details. There was a civil war going on between the two, Hashanah princes, uh, Aristobulus and Hercules. Both of them were jerks, right? Both of them were bad. And uh, the Romans sided with one, and the Roman army came in and took over the whole business. And from that day on, whether the Jews liked it or not, and they hated it, they're under control of Rome. Uh, that's Pompey, Pompeius, Aeneas uh, Pompeius. Uh, if you know anything about Roman history, very famous uh, figure. It's funny, you know, uh, Trump is now out. But uh, Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, was the most pro-Israel Secretary of State, going back to 1948. It's not even a Shiloh. He's the most pro-Israel uh, Secretary of State. State Department never been, you know, pro-Israel like that, uh, like it's been under Pompeo, even though you've had some good Secretaries of State here and there. I did a, a lecture last week or two weeks ago about George Schultz, who was a, who was a great friend of Israel, but uh, not like Pompeo. And the reason I'm mentioning is, I happened to see in the news that just, maybe you remember this, uh, because it's not that long ago, and the last week or so, when he was Secretary of State, he went to Israel. And I believe he went to a, uh, a winery and stuff like that. And he gave Israel some other concession or whatever. You know, it was like the icing on the cake. Now that he's gone, all of a sudden the international court's going after Israel. But when it happened under him. And I saw a Bibi, uh, Netanyahu, gave him a goodbye reception or something like that. A press conference. And he said like that. I like this. BB said the following. He said, Pompeo's been great, better than anybody else. The first Pompeo was a bummer. The second Pompeo was good. Meaning, the first Pompeo was Pompey the Great, the Roman general who destroyed Jewish independence. This guy, Mike Pompeo, is okay. 
So he's playing with the words on Pompey. Now, uh, that happened in 63 BC. And ever since then, the Jews, whether they liked it or not, were under Roman control. It's a very complicated story. And I ain't going into all of it. Only the parts that are in the Gaia. So from then on, uh, the Jews were controlled by the Romans. The question is who controls Rome? So at the time of Pompey, right afterwards, he started the triumvirate, right? So basically he realized, I control X number of votes, and Julius Caesar controls X number of votes. And the other guy, what was his name? Crassus, controls X number of votes. So between the three of us, we have a decisive majority of politicians in the Senate who vote our way. So as long as we three get together, we can be like dictator. This was the downfall of the Roman Republic. And eventually, this led to a civil war uh, between the three. Uh, actually, Crassus was killed by the Parthians, whatever. Let's leave that out. The civil war between Pompey and Caesar. And Julius Caesar uh, destroyed Pompey, beat him, and then Pompey was killed. And from then on, Julius Caesar was the dictator, but of course he was assassinated, then started the second triumvirate. And by the time the whole dust cleared, you had Rome under Augustus Caesar, the first of the emperors. So Rome switched from a republic to an emperorship. Now, Augustus ruled for 40-some years, Octavian Augustus, and he was a very smart cookie. And he was very conservative, therefore, he wanted to keep the um, the forms of the old Roman Republic. And so he says, I'm not the king, I'm just a citizen here. He was the first citizen to bring caps, but this is citizen. I'm a senator like everybody else. And uh, I want the same old system to go. Rome is a republic. But really it wasn't because you didn't mess with him. But he was a very mellow type individual. He had killed all of his enemies so people knew not to mess with him. So Augustus would sit in the Senate with the others. And, you know, somebody would propose this law and somebody would propose that thing. Or this, appoint this person, that person. And he was mellow enough that if somebody disagreed with him, it's not a big deal. You know what I said? Somebody disagreed with him, not a big deal. But if he really wanted something to happen, he would say like this, is, I really think we should do this. In which case, the other would back off and say, okay. Because really, it's what you call the, the, the iron fist in the, in the velvet glove. Okay? But he really did a terrible thing because he he left a legacy in which he did a, a terrible thing because he was good at it. He left a legacy of a moderate emperor, a moderate ruler. By the way, emperor simply means imperator. He was the commander-in-chief of the Roman army. Over the course of time, he came to have the connotation of a certain type of king. Originally, just meant he was, the, I remember, he was a regular citizen, except that he was the emperor. So he was commander-in-chief of the army, and uh, he was the pontifex maximus. He was the coming god of the Roman religion, and he was the princeps. He was the first citizen, you know, uh, in terms of COVID. But other than that, he just said, I'm a regular person like anybody else. It was a lie, but, you know, that's the way he did it. So the others afterwards said, it's not so bad to have an emperor, and that's how Rome declined into having an empire ship, right? Instead of republic. Now, um, this a little bit reminds me of the famous story somebody went to the Munkacharov. Oh, 100 years ago. I'm talking about the Michalazar. And the guy had left Munkach and gone to medical school. No, he went and got a secular education, went to university, came back to medical school. <laughs> and he was a from guy. And he came back, Munkach always says, see, I got an MD, I'm still on Shema Shabbos. How can I help this cause of Yiddishkeit in Munkach? 
And the famous story is the Munkach Rav Zalgis, go shmatzach, <laughs> go convert. Meaning, if you uh, are successfully from having gone to college, it'll encourage the other people to do that. I don't want other people to go to college. Therefore, if you convert, it'll show, see, anybody who goes to college converts. Not enough if the story is true or apocryphal, but the point of the matter is, you get the idea. And when it comes to Augustus, you know, because he was for 40-some years and he ran everything very moderately and, and rather well, uh, so people like, oh, see, it's not so bad to have an emperor. The ones after him were not like that. So when Augustus died, he was taken by Tiberius, and the next emperor was like a, a stepson. I'm going to skip all the Lush and Harm. There's an enormous amount of Lush and Harm in, in the personal lives of each of these emperors. As is true of everybody, but particularly he's true. Uh, the guy who shares all the Lushanara, well, first of all, Tacitus, and then the other guy, Suetonius, if you care to look this up. Everything is online. All the classics are now online. And uh, the history of Tacitus and the history of Suetonius, Suetonius' lives of the emperors, these are classic biographies from thousands of years ago. These are, you know, these are um, famous. Now, um, so... Augustus died, maybe he was poisoned, whatever. And when Tiberius took over, Tiberius had a completely different temperament. And uh, he was a sick dog in a, in in his uh, personal Matthias. But he was machalic between the way he ran the empire on the one hand and his private life on the other hand. And so again, without sparing you all the gory details, Bifar Hesia, he ran the, 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 the empire fairly well. Uh, you know, he didn't overtax and, you know, and he uh, made sure there was justice and things like that. His personal life, he ran away to the island of Capri and he got out in all kind of orgies and this and that and the other and he liked, he, he was sick. Oh, sicko. He liked to push girls off a cliff for fun. This is true. If you go to Capri, they show you where he did it and all kind of other stuff. In other words, it was, it was in relation to Tiberius and the next guy, Caligula, that you all heard that famous statement from Lord Acton, the historian, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. He was referring to Tiberius and Caligula. Again, power corrupts. It's hard to have power without it getting to you. And absolute power, I mean, if you have total dictatorship power, it's like impossible to be normal. It corrupts absolutely. I mean, it corrupts 100%. The character, you become a weirdo, a sicko. And he was referring to Tiberius. Now, and his successor, Having said that, Tiberius didn't like Jews. None of the emperors liked Jews. None of the emperors liked Jews. But there's a big difference between not liking somebody and deliberately provoking a hornet's nest. The Roman rulers, like the Greeks before them, always gave the Jews like a certain pass. The Hainu, in the Greek era and in the Roman era as well, you had the gods. You know, with the idols and everything. And it was expected that um, all the peoples would, would would worship them in some fashion or another. After all, if you're a pagan, so you have another god. You know, even though you have the gods of Egypt, then you have another, like the Emperor of Rome or something like that. One of the Roman gods. What's the big deal? But if you're Jewish, you can't do it. The Romans understood that. They said, it's not a vort that the Jews are anti-Rome. They can't worship another god. That's their crazy religion. It may be a crazy religion, but it's been, as the Jews pointed out always, we have antiquity. Our beliefs are ancient. We didn't start it. They've been around, the Isra of Odazar have been around long before Rome existed. And so don't hold it against us. And the Roman rulers like Pompey and Julius Caesar and the other guys, 
like that, and Augustus, they were Macabalet. Okay? As long as the Jews, uh, you know, don't cause trouble for Rome, they're, they're agreed to be subservient to Rome, to pay their taxes, obey the Roman junk. Uh, so they don't have to worship other gods. And people understood this is a mission gods of Judaism, that's all. They can't worship idols. As a matter of fact, when Augustus um, had Roman armies marching through Judea, it's very famous that he gave orders that each of the Roman uh, legions had uh, their own idols, which called the eagles, on, um, on which were the regimental uh, standards. Notice it's not a flag. It's a physical idol, an eagle on a staff, and it represents the idol, in a certain sense, represents the gods of Rome. If you march through the Jewish territory, is a is a and the Jews would freak out at that time, right? The Jews would freak out. So, um, and and they might rebel or something like that. And Augustus was wise enough to realize, like this: Listen, I ain't interested in provoking any unnecessary rebellions. If it's a necessary rebellion, all right, we'll take him out. But wars cost money, right? Wars cost money. Why should we do that for nothing? So, old-fashioned Romans. We're extremely cynical, but part of the cynicism is one which says we leave an economy of force. You only use that amount of force necessary to keep the people uh, under your control. But it's not necessary to be excessive on that, you see? And so in the case of Judaism, it meant you, know, you, you, you give space to the Jewish religion. So the Romans never expected that there should be an idol in Judea, certainly on the base of Migdosh. On the other hand, the Jews did offer a carbon every day on behalf of the Roman Emperor. That's a sign that our religion respects you. The Gemara even, the Gemara even refers to that. And, and that's how it worked out. Now, I'm skipping a lot, but, you know, uh, it's not time to give a course on this. So, Tiberius wasn't crazy about Jews at all. However, he wasn't going to provoke a war for nothing. Okay? And uh, it is during his time that Pontius Pilate, the famous guy from the New Testament, who was the governor of Judea, and at one point, Pontius Pilate, who hated Jews, because a lot of Romans were resentful of this, we're the boss, and we have to sheathe our eagles for these damn Jews, you know, bother them as Romans. And um, this Pontius Pilate, at one point, wanted to bring into uh, Jerusalem, because the Romans garrisoned Jerusalem, two shields, with paintings of the emperor, so it's it's two dimensional. It's not it's not a an idol exactly, but it's an image. Then Jews went crazy, and Pontius Pilate said, "Oh, you're being treason." And they said, "No, we're not being treason. Just it's against our religion. You know this. Why are you provoking us?" They lay down in the street. They say, "Kill us all," and so on and so forth. And the point of the story is that some Jews wrote to Tiberius, and somehow the letter got through. And when Tiberius heard about what Pontius Pilate did, he fired him. <laughs> he said, "Who who asked you?" To go make a, a rebellion for nothing. You understand? Know he fired him. So um, that's the matzah. Now, again, like I said, I'm skipping a lot, but getting to the point. Now, when 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 Pontius Pilate, I'm sorry, when Tiberius, uh, whew, when he uh, got old and was dying, the question is, who's going to take over after him? Now, again, this is a very complicated story. But over the, over the course of time, Tiberius was was uh, paranoid and jealous of all his relatives, and eventually he got them all killed in one way or the other. This one this way, that one that way. It's all in great detail in Tacitus and Suetonius. Uh, 
if you find them boring to read, their famous novels during this is Robert Graves wrote I Claudius and Claudius the God. He's got all the Suetonian stuff there in um literary form form of a novel, but it's all pretty accurate. Anyway, so the only one who wasn't killed was uh the Emperor's uh, nephew, uh Caligula. Right? Like I say, without going through all the details. And Caligula was kind of raised for a part of the time by Tiberius. And he became part of his sick dog operation, you know, because he used to hang around in Capri through these wild parties. I mean, wild parties and sick things. And uh, let's put it this way. Gila Reis, was the least of it. <laughs> they took it to new levels. They took Gila Reis to new levels. Shvichas to new levels. And Avodazar to new levels. Okay? And, uh, and so forth. Now, eventually, um, Tiberius died. It may be that Caligula killed him, whatever. And then he became the emperor, Gaius, his name. Caligula is just what the soldiers call him. His father was a great general, and uh, he was raised in the army camp. A Caligula is a little Roman boots that he called him. Little boot. Well, fine, let it be. Now, uh, now this guy became the emperor of Rome. Uh... It's a W. Dua that for the first few months he was a normal. Everybody was happy. Then he got some kind of illness and he clearly got some kind of brain zah. In other words, he was certifiable. Uh, I don't just simply say he's nuts. The way we understand today, most historians, is he literally had a physiological brain issue. You know what I'm saying? Now, I'm not a doctor, but it is what it is. Now, at that point, he he became totally nuts, and the Romans were all afraid to mess with him, and so this became a, 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 a what Lord Acton means by an example of the base presiding over the uh, powerful. The Roman Empire was so big, and so chashim, and so powerful, and so uh, well educated and organized. Why did they let this not run the show? But they did, and so he had a lot of people killed, and he had a lot of other things, and. Uh, he attacked people's wives. Oh, you know, he went and married his sister. He went off the off the wall, and nobody said anything. Uh, the classic story is he made his horse a consul of Rome. No, it's like you say today, he made his horse a member of the cabinet. Nobody said boo. <laughs> right? The senators were all scared to death because of the slightest thing he would kill him, and they all went along. At one point, he attacked the ocean. You know, he went to attack England, but instead he attacked the English Channel or something like that. And he told the soldiers to throw their spears and fight the ocean. I'm fighting Neptune, the god of the sea. And he brought back uh, seashells as a, a you know uh, triumph, uh, spoil and booty. So the guy was nuts. Okay. Now, what does that have to do with the Jews? First of all, he's the emperor of Rome. He controls all the Jews in the Roman Empire. All of Eretz Yisrael, elsewhere as well. Okay? Now comes the point of our story. When Caligula was the emperor... So from day one, I would say like this, it was known that he didn't like Jews. The largest Jewish community outside of Israel was Alexandria in Egypt. Those of you who know anything from the Gemara know that that giant synagogue that everybody's famous for, you know, where um, it was so huge, you had to wave a flag so people know when to say Amen. There was, if you know a little bit more, you'll know that the Jews of Alexandria were a very large and rich and powerful community. I mean, very large. And uh, they had special privileges from the kings of Egypt and later from under the Romans also. And uh, they developed their own form of Judaism, which is uh, strange to us today. 
It's called Alexandrian Judaism. Let's put it this way. They had their own base on Migdash. How they worked that out? Migdash Chonyo. And it wasn't trafe exactly, but it wasn't kosher either. That's why many are familiar. Now Gemara's, Megillah's coming up. Many people have Megillah for Purim. There's a discussion in the first parak somewhere. Is a Kohen who um, who served in the Migdash Chonyo in the Temple of Onias in Egypt, in Heliopolis, is he allowed to serve in the base of Megillah? Can you imagine today they would say, I guess, can a Reform rabbi be a, a, a Rav or Orthodox Shul? It wouldn't even come up. If it came up, it means that they understood that the Beis Hamikdash that the Jews in Egypt maintained was not exactly treif. It was just a screwed up theology. So you and I don't know exactly what was happening at that time over there. It's hard for us at this far removed to to follow. Follow. There's a lot of theories, and um, in the writings of that time, which I'll talk about in a second, there are many references to halachic issues. Some of which are the same as what we find in the in the Israeli rabbinic sources, what you and I call the Mishnah, the Gemara, and all the rest of it, and some not. This is already noticed, ooh, in the early 1800s by Zachariah Frankel, the founder of conservative Judaism, who's a big scholar. He was always doing compare and contrast between the Alexandrian halacha and the Israeli, the Palestinian halacha. Uh, more recently, you know, was a buck in this stuff. It's weird, uh, Dr. Belkin. From Wyu, Shmuel Belkin, who uh, came to the, he came here in the thirties, became the head of Wyu eventually. He was a big time with Chacham. He learned, I think, by the Chavetz Chaim, I believe. Uh, but he went and got his degree at Brown, I think it was, and he learned Greek. Then he did whatever yeshiva guy ever does. He said, "You write your dissertation, the other books, on something on a Jewish subject." So he used to. I remember he used to write back and forth on the Alexandrian halacha versus what you have in the Gemara because he knew the Gemara very well. Anyway, this is the funny situation you had in Egypt. In their way, they meant well. I think that's pretty clear. In their way, they were loyal Jews. Uh, we today often will say a person is not a firm Jew unless you're what you call a halachically observant. Depending on what your standards are and who you are, they'll say, oh, she doesn't cover her hair. This one doesn't do this. This one uh, has a uh, TV on a time clock. You know, we're now in halachic nitty-gritty. It wasn't exactly that way. I just uh, mentioned my show the other day. I happened to look, since the Parshish Yisro, at the Gemara about Kofram Hake Gigas, you know, in Shabbos. What was it? Peches, uh, I think. And the Tos is there, you know, raised the question, why do you say Kofram Hake Gigas? Modor Rabba Larissa. That's a complaint against the Torah was forced upon them. Didn't the Jews accept it later on in the time of Joshua? Right? Uh, at the end of the book of Joshua, he says, I'll give you a chance. You want to accept God or not? And they do. And Tosa says, they only accepted to believe in God and not worship idols. They didn't accept the rest of the Torah. Which is very interesting. In other words, you could define Jewish as saying, I believe in, in, in Hashem, and I disbelieve in all the other idols and gods. And that that's what you that's called a Jew. Whether or not you keep all the other mitzvahs, whatever. You know, some yes, some no, some 100%. So 50% is a very complicated subject. Now, uh, there's no question that the Jews in Alexandria certainly were monotheists and uh, disbelieved in the Greek stuff, which is, took a lot. And they kept a lot of things, not exactly the way we do, but a lot they did. Okay, now the how do we know anything about the Jews of Alexandria? Well, one of them, Philo, P-H-I-L-O, right, Philo, 
uh, wrote a lot of books. So in other words, at the time we're talking about, the time of Tiberius Caligula and all that, in the first century CE, there was a, a, a rich and highly educated Jew uh, from maybe the richest family in the country, in Egypt, or up there, very aristocratic and so forth, named Philo. His brother was the uh, head of the Jewish community, the head tax collector, and uh, this guy Philo was, as I said before, very intellectual, and he clearly was a Yiddish Yid, but growing up t entirely within a Hellenistic context. Alexandria was in Egypt. There, the language is Greek. There are many Greek, um, when I say Greek, I'm referring especially to the Hellenistic era, after the classical era. That's where the Great Library was. That's where they translated the Bible into Greek, into Septuagint. And it's an interesting place of clashes and interactions between Jews and non-Jews in a way you didn't find anywhere else. Now, Egypt was a place with a lot of anti-Semitism. There are many reasons for this, but the central reason was the Jews were the oddballs. They didn't follow the, the laws like everybody else because they had a special past. They don't have to worship idols. And second of all, the, gov the rulers of the country always gave, gave Jews special economic privileges because the Jews considered very good businessmen and more honest. And so if you put the harbor under their control or the, or the customs house, they'll do better in terms of making sure the king gets the money, then if somebody's not Jewish. I would finally throw into the shalom the fact that once the Bible is translated into Greek, let's put it this way, Pesach is coming up around the corner. The Bible is an anti-Egyptian document. Agreed? Bible is an anti-Egyptian document. Look at the Chumash. Look at the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Shibli Mitzrayim. It all busts Egypt. And Pharaoh looks stupid by the time it's all gone. And if you do the Haftorahs that I gave podcasts on the last couple of years, Yeshaya, Yermi, they're always dumping on Egypt, big time. Latane, Magadol, I mean, big time. So the Old Testament is an anti-Egyptian document. This drove the Egyptians crazy, understandably, right, understandably, and it produced an anti-Jewish, reaction, anti-Jewish rhetoric, and a lot of anti-Jewish intellectuals coming out of this milieu were prominent in Alexandria and in Egypt. So Jews and Egyptians did not get along. Now the trick is, the Jews said, first of all, I don't know what they said, but you know, it seems that or the government's on our side, the police are on our side, the army's on our side, so then the, uh, the anti-Semitism will be restrained. Sort of like the way Americans will say now, you, say, you got the squad in Congress and all these anti-Jewish, anti-Israel, BDS, and all this other business. Oh, but, you know, the law and order is on our side. But to lousy business when the atmosphere gets poisoned with anti-Semitic rhetoric. That is what happened at that time. Now, it had been building up for a long time, and all it took was any kind of breakdown of law and order, uh, then the mob will go crazy. So when Caligula became the emperor of Rome, the governor, the Roman governor in Alexandria in Egypt was uh, Flaccus, and F-L-A-C-C-U-S, that's how usually they write it. Flaccus also hated the Jews. I'm sure the anti-Semites gave him some money. And he, he did something that was usually unthinkable in the Roman context, which he, he said... You know, I'm going to look the other way if you want to make a pogrom. He even held in it. He even facilitated it. And so, there occurred, in the year that um, Caligula became the emperor, a gigantic pogrom broke out. Pogrom broke out in Alexandria. Uh, our writer here, Philo, was there. He wrote a very vivid description of it. 
Philo, as you'll see later on, wrote like 100 books, of which probably 50 survive. Very interesting guy. And, but it's unknown in the in the firm world. And this is a Jewish guy writing at that time. And one of them is called Flaccus, the story the, the Art of Flaccus. And he describes, I remember reading this, they burned Jews alive, they nailed them to uh, uh, ship masts, they tortured people in a in a on the theater uh, stage and everybody was clapping. Very Nazi-ish types of things. It was pretty bad. And uh, when it's all over, so it was like a black mark on the Roman administration. And so what happened was, Jew said, can't talk to this Flaccus guy. They want to get him fired. That you had to go to Rome. So um, two teams were formed to go to the emperor in Rome. One representing the pogromists, those the Greeks, the, the Goyim, the Egyptian and the Greeks, who are going to explain why the Jews brought this on themselves. And the Jews should be wiped out or kicked out. And then the other one was the delegation from the Jewish community. Now, these are Jews who speak Greek, Latin, many of them, that were, like you would say today, very acculturated, assimilated, but they're Jewish. And, uh, oh, the Roman guy put them all in a, in a ghetto. It's quite a story. And if anybody's interested in what I'm saying, you just, um, you, uh, years ago I bought the book, used to sell them little, little uh, uh, size. Uh, but it's all online today. Everything These, these are the classics. Philo is very well known in Christianity. So if you just do on Flaccus, you know, you'll get the whole text. And it's pretty gruesome the way he describes it. Now, uh, so what happened was that two uh, delegations or embassies went to Rome to complain to Caligula. The guy against the Jews, the Jews against the guy. Now, um, and our hero, Philo, wrote another book, fascinating book called Embassy to Caligula or Embassy to Gaius. Again, it's all classic stuff. It's online. And the leader of the bad guys was uh, the number one uh, demagogue in uh, Alexandria, Appian. It was what you call a rhetorician, rhetoric. These are, like we'd say today, it's hard to explain all this without a long aritas, but today he was a very, he was a, uh, what's the right word? A very well-known public speaker. Okay? He was a bucky in the Greek uh, uh, culture. He was one of the great experts in Homer. And rhetoric is an old form of public speaking that uses certain tactics. In other words, he, he excelled in the Geisha stuff. Now, um, and, 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 and uh, as is described, he was demagogue. He knew how to whip up a crowd. So we'd say today, the anti-Semitic rabble-rouser, no lack of those. And they both went to, and so uh, Philo describes that they both went to um, Rome to complain to the emperor. Clearly, Caligula was favoring the game. When the Jews came in, he didn't pay attention to them. He walked with them in the garden. He uh, he uh, said, keep talking while he looked at his face uh, roses or something like that. He was just showing contempt, you know, more or less mooned them. And he even said, you know, why do you have such retarded uh, customs like you don't eat pigs? What is that? And then he said, how do you pronounce your God again? You know, he said, the shame on Farish. He was showing you the contempt, you see, for the Judaism. Now, um, this is what, so things were going bad for the Jews because um, this Caligula guy, I mean, he's not going to help them. So once that gets back to Alexander, there's going to be bigger pogroms. But the story gets more complicated because 
One one of the things that happened to him when he, when he went Meshuggah, I repeat, he was nuts, but the Roman Empire went follow him, you know, notwithstanding. And um, he said he's a god, and uh, they should have his statue everywhere, including in the base of Middush. Now, he didn't think about the Jews, but some guys, I know, we don't know who it is, in Yavna, set up an idol. The local Jews, the from Jews went crazy. They, they destroyed the idol. The Roman governor complained about this to Caligula. Well, that's that, that's an ballistic. Then he said, hell with the Jews. Set up an idol of Zeus. I probably, it was Zeus looked like Caligula, I imagine. You know, one of those combinations. And put it in the Kodesh HaKadoshim of the base of Migdash, the central base of Migdash. If the Jews give me any trouble, kill them all. Kill them all. And he was nuts enough to do it. You get it? He had no issues doing that. So the Jews' mom was doomed. You understand? This guy was in charge. And all throughout the Roman Empire, they would kill all the Jews. So I'm describing to you a kind of a Purim situation that most people are not exactly familiar with. It's not the same thing, but he had no hesitation. Wouldn't bother him a bit. Because he was certifiable. Now, what happened was that the Jews were going crazy over this. He sent the Roman governor, I think from Syria, I believe, a Petronius. And he said, uh, build an idol, go down, and put a base in Megish. Any Jew gives you trouble, kill him. Now, most of the Romans were hilarious. It's Hashkacha Pratis that this guy was a good Roman. It's rare. Petronius. He was a good guy. And by that I mean, he was from the old school, like Julius Caesar and Augustus. Why provoke a war over nothing? You know what I'm saying? Uh, certain place you don't you don't mess with this. Do you remember years ago, some soldier in the American army in Saudi Arabia flushed a Koran down the toilet and so forth? Oh, the American government punished him and, and apologized. I don't blame him. What do you want to provoke a war with a zillion Muslims for nothing? For nothing. You see? I'm not going to change that. And so this Petronius was like that. But he knew he's dealing with a nut emperor. And so he felt bad after kill all Jews for this Mishagas. And so he proceeded slowly. I remember he sailed from uh, his headquarters in Antioch down to Akko. And then he just very slowly, he said, let's have a, a competition who can make the best idol and whatever. He, he, he went slow, hoping that Caligula might change his mind. Hoping Caligula might change his mind. And, uh, and and Caligula did not. And eventually he had to build the idol. And when he came into Israel part, the Jews came in huge throngs from all over the place, not with weapons, but basically they threw themselves to the ground and said, kill us, you know, please don't do this. We're not rebelling against Rome. It's nothing to do with anything. We can't have an idol in Beis HaMikdash. So here you see, Bayes Rishon, very different Bayes Shani. Bayes Rishon, the Jews were chock full of Odazar. Bayes Shani, things have changed. And the Jews are very not. They're the opposite. There's reasons for it, but here's a wonderful example of that. And so Petronius was walking slowly to Jerusalem, but he said, listen, it's not in my hands, you know. I got orders over here. And I said, please, please don't do this, and this, and that, and the other. What do we need to do? And there was no solution to this. There was no solution to this. So eventually he's going to get Yushalayim, and if Jews give him any trouble, he's just going to kill everybody in the Roman army at that time could do it. So it was a bad moment. Now, meanwhile, back in Rome, 
an interesting person made his appearance. Here we have Agrippa, Agrippa's Amalek, or Herod Agrippa's the first. This was a grandson of Herod, Hordus. Hordus was like the Joseph Stalin of the Jews. You understand? Know he was a ruler that the Romans had set up to be king of the Jews. He wasn't really Jewish, but I'm not quite getting all that. Edomi, whatever. And suffice it to say, the Jews hated him and he was a tyrant over them. He's the one who rebuilt the base of Migdash. Okay, he's the one who rebuilt the base of Migdash. So when you do Midos or those Gemaras, it's the second temple rebuilt by Herod, which was fancy schmancy. Anybody's ever learned the first parak of, what is it, Babasra knows that story. Um, and the Chazal say, if you never saw the base of Migdash, Herod, you never saw a pretty building. Built in the Greek style. You know what I'm saying? If you ever wonder, you go to the base of Migdash, it's very Hellenistic because they're rebuilt, re redone by Herod in the classic Greek style with the marble pillars and the white stuff over there. And whatever, that's how it goes. Now, um, Herod was a real momser, but he was a genius at intuiting how to get along with the Romans, how to kiss up to them. That's why the Romans always kept him in office, even the Jews hated him. And he was smart enough that his grandchildren, when they were born and grew up, he said like this, the best thing I can do for you is send you to a prep school in Rome. Because then, it's not what you learn over there, well, that's important too, but your roommates and playmates will be the future rulers of Rome. What a smart guy he was. And so he sent his grandson, Herod Agrippa, to, um, hear what I said, Herod Agrippa, right? Agri By the way, even the name Agrippa, Agrippa was a famous Roman general under Augustus. That was a way of kissing up to the Romans. You see? But, you know, I'm naming him after your general. But whatever the case is, he have a Jewish prince, if you want to call him that. Let's leave the halachic issues aside. He was, a, he was seen as a Jewish prince. and um, But growing up in a prep school in Rome, who was, who was his classmates, who was his contemporaries in the prep school? Caligula. And others. And others. Being a smart guy and probably told by his grandfather, he sucked up to him right away. You know? Knows as a kid, this guy's going to be a macher in the in the future. That's a guy you got to flatter and uh, kiss up to, and do friend uh, do uh, favors for and things like that, and it worked. Now, colloquially, to be a friend of his, you have to be a nut and a super party animal. Well, that's what he was. So he became famous or infamous in Rome, famous actually, for throwing super wild parties. We're talking about the Roman uh, decadent parties, the orgies, and everything of old. Like you read about, you know, that's what they write the books and the movies and everything like that. Whatever you can think of, <laughs> make it times two. And uh, that's what it takes to be successful in that in that circle. Okay? So he got good luck because this was under Tiberius when he was the emperor. And Agrippa, who could see the Caligula's coming up soon, he once said at a party, some wild party, I can just imagine. Actually, I can't just imagine what this party was like. And he said, you know, as long as that old fool Tiberius is on the throne, it's not, you know, we can't do what we really want to do. But once he goes and you become the emperor, then we're going to have some serious partying, man. I mean, serious partying. And listen to this. Somebody overheard it and, and, and squealed to Tiberius, who was angry and, arre and arrested him and threw him in jail, in prison, a Roman prison, mind you. And they actually um, tied him in chains to the wall. Uh, but a few months, here he has a good mazel. A few months later, Tiberius died, and Caligula became the emperor. 
And from the Caligula point of view, this guy has suffered for five months, six months for me, for friendship for me. So, Caligula went to the jail. He said, I'm freeing you, and you were chained to the wall. I'm going to give you golden chains as a, as a permanent souvenir. And he actually made him uh, king of part of Eretz Israel. That's how the Romans did it. They broke up into pieces, two parts of Israel. And uh, and Agrippa made his business to hang around um, Caligula. And uh, he visited his, he actually visited the Middle East a little bit. Uh, that his his visit to Alexandria is what sent off the pogroms I talked about before. But eventually he came back to Rome. And here he is, you know, Mr. Uh, Party Animal is like Playboy, you know, that's that was a reputation. So this is not a from Jew in the sense, you know, you would imagine, but he is friends with Caligula. And then he hears about this business of setting up the idol in Israel, in Jerusalem. And what are we going to do about this? And this is where Agrippa uh, had his uh, finest hour because he went to see the emperor and he wrote him a letter in which he appealed to him not to do the idol, which means he's basically putting his life in his, his hands. This whole letter is in is in, in Philo's book. Again, the name of the book is Embassy to Gaius. And I encountered it many, many years ago in a golden oldie. There used to be something called the Treasury of Jewish Letters published by the Jewish Publication Society back in the early 50s. I bought a second hand at the old Hebrew, or I got it, old Hebrew college. And uh, one of the classic letters of old, uh, now it's in Greek, because Philo's books are all in Greek. He writes about Yiddishkeit, but it's always in Greek. He has the biography of Moshe, of Yosef, of Avram, of Bechira, all kind of Jewish topics. He's like the Ari Kaplan of the first century. So, in this story about the embassy to Gaius, he says over here, there's a letter, and he writes the letter, and I don't know if it's exactly, it's very rhetorical, rhetoric, I mean, but it could be true. And he appealed, Agrippa took his life in hands, and he appealed to Caligula, of all people, not to go through with the idol. And he says, it's about 10 pages. Oh, master, fear and shame have taken from me all courage to come into your presence to address you. I'm afraid to speak to you directly. Fear teaches me to dread your threats and shame out of respect for the greatness of your majesty. It keeps me silent. But I'll write to you. In all men, O emperor, a love of their country is innate and an eager fondness for their national customs and laws. Right? Everybody likes their own country, their own religion. And there's no mean I should give you information. You have a heartfelt love for your own country and a deep-seated respect for your national customs. And what appears to themselves appears beautiful to everyone, even if it's not so to reality. In other words, everybody thinks his religion and his culture is the best. That's natural. For he judge these things not by reason, but by affection. I am a Jew, and Jerusalem is my country, in which there is erected the holy temple of the Most High God. And I have kings for my grandfathers and my ancestors, most of whom were called Kohen Gadol, high priest, looking upon their royal power as not as important as their office as priests, and thinking a high priesthood is more to the power of king as God is superior to men. And he goes on and on in, in great deal, talk about how great the base of English is, and what importance it is. So in other words, it may look weird to you, but to a Jew, it's holy. Okay? 
Now, I'm not going to do justice to this. And if everybody's really interested, just look up online. King Agrippa writes to Caligula or something like that. It's got to be there. And uh, and he, what's the right word? He touched all the buttons uh, that could possibly appeal to a guy like Caligula. That's a tall order. Caligula was a nut. But at the same time, he was a Roman aristocrat. And certain type of things, like he said, you of all people will understand ancestral loyalty. You of all people, being such a high intellectual, can appreciate the philosophical majesty of an invisible God. And he wrote him all kind of stuff. And when Caligula got the letter, it says, when the one... Our guy we're talking about, Agrippa, he spent all of his life in the science of psyching out the Roman big shots. I mean, that's what he did ever since he went to prep school. And so if any Jew in the world knew how to appeal, it was him. And when Caligula got the letter, he was at first angry. But then he said, you know, I like the fact that he had the, 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 the courage to appeal to the best part of me. And he's actually going to change his mind. It's unbelievable for a guy like Caligula. Thinking about, look what a genius and psyching out the Roman mentality was. And he actually was going to change his mind. But uh, shortly thereafter, like a day later, a letter came from Petronius back in Palestine, in which Petronius said like this, I don't think this is a good idea. Let's reconsider this. The Jews are freaking out. I have to kill out the whole country. You know, maybe we should uh, approach it another way. That touched Caligula the opposite button. And he freaked out. He said like this, the heck with everything. And he ordered Petronius, kill all the Jews, put the idol in there, to hell with them, and after you set everything up, commit suicide, because you had to, to question even me. So in other words, everything that was done positively by the letter of Agrippa was undone by the well-meaning letter of Petronius, because the whole thing depended on how it hit Caligula. The whole world depended on him as a dictator. And so if you... Uh, if you press this button, he would he would he would uh, uh you know go this way. If he pressed that button, it would go another way. And so the Jews were like in bad shape. Now listen to this. So he sent a letter back to go set up the a base of Mikdash, put the idol in, and kill everybody if they give you trouble, and then kill himself. Fortunately, meanwhile, Caligula had ticked off a lot of Romans, and there was a plot to assassinate him. I'll tell you something interesting. The plot is not described in detail in the Roman historians, as I recall. Not in Tacitus, Suetonius, Diocassius, and the others. It's in Josephus, the Jewish historian, who writes about this also. And uh, he has all the details of how they plotted to assassinate him. And again, I'll skip all the bloody details. A few days later, Caligula was killed uh, in the stadium, you know, uh, while he was getting a hot dog, you might say. In the mezzanine, he was killed, his whole family was killed. And um, again, skipping over all the details, his uncle, Claudius, became the new emperor. Claudius was also a good friend with Agrippa. That's a whole story by itself. And so when Claudius came in, uh, Agrippa went to him. Agrippa played a, an important role in um, getting Claudius to become the emperor of Rome. You hear what I just said? The Jewish prince played an important role and getting the Roman Senate to accept Claudius as emperor. So he stood in, that's a story by itself. So he stood in good favor, and once Claudius was the emperor, he said, listen, stop this business in Yerushalayim with the idol. 
And Claudia says, you're right, the Caligula was nuts. So we'll call that off. Second of all, by the way, uh, I'll stop the pogroms in, in Alexandria. See? Uh, and Flaccus was actually killed. So no, like, Now, wait a minute. Listen to this. But meanwhile, Petronius is going to get killed because he get, had an order to commit suicide. The ship carrying the message to Petronius that he should commit suicide got blown off course by a wind. The second ship, which was sent by the new Emperor Claudius, saying Caligula is dead and canceled the whole project, the second ship, even though it left later, got there first. So if you're Petronius, you get a letter on Monday saying like this, this is Claudius, now I'm in charge, and canceled the whole business. Caligula's dead. On Tuesday, you get a letter from Caligula saying, kill yourself, set up the idol and kill yourself. But with, it was Bato, that was assigned Mina Shamayim, that Petronius had, had, had been like a tzaddik. You understand? This is called the, the episode of Caligula. So the happy ending, in the sense that I just described. This occasion is... 20 is celebrated in McGill's Tynus. Now that, now that I told you the basic story in a coded fashion as one of McGill's Tynus dates. Listen how it says it over here. The Estrian Betartan Bay on the 22nd of Shabbat, which was last Wednesday, I guess. The uh, the art site of Rosenberg was Thursday night, says so Wednesday, Wednesday, th- uh, Tuesday night, Wednesday. I said it wrong. Wednesday night and Thursday. Bastion Retardant Bay Batalus Avidito, there was cancelled the Avoda, the Umr Sanaw that the enemy made, La Hesola Hechala, to bring him to the Hechal, Lola Mismas. There's no no Hespe. Now the language is strange unless you know what I just told you. Yom Shashalch Gaskalas is at Slomen, the day that Gaskalas, which is a corruption of Caligula, the day that Caligula sent the idols, La Hamidon Behechal, to set up in the base of Megdash in the Hechol. Ubashmul Yerushalayim Erev Yom Tavrishin Shalchag. And the Jews got news that they have to set up an idol in the Hechol. The news arrived in Jerusalem on um, Erev Sukkot. Amlam Shimon Atzadik. So the Kohen Gadol. They call him Shimon Atzadik. It's not really Shimon Atzadik. But whoever the Kohen Gadol was said, Asum Wadechem Besimcha. This is the rabbinic story. Don't worry about it. Uh, celebrate Sukkot B'Simcha, She'ein Echad Mikol Advarim O'Ela She'shmatem Yikuyam, that none of the threats that you hear will happen. Ki Misha Shikin Shechinatim B'Bayis Hazeh, because God, who has caused His Shechinat to dwell in this holy house, Geshem Shosanim Nisim Lavosinim B'Chol Dovador, Kin Yasanim B'Zman Hazeh. Miyad Shama. Now, the the Megillah's tiny here is a little bit corrupt in certain places. You just have to get used to that. It's how it goes. It says, Miyad Shama, call me base Kacha Kachim, Shomer. And they heard a voice coming out of Kodesh Kadoshim, a boss called it says, Betelus Avidito, Tamar Son of Haisal Hechel. That the whole project to bring an idol is now, is, is today bottle? Because Iskutil Daskalas of Bottle Because this minute, Caligula has just been killed. So all the Xeros are bottle. Now, because of also Shabakivnum, so they immediately recorded. Let's put it this way. This happened on Sukkot. So they recorded the time that the message was given that Caligula was just assassinated. Now there was no 
TV at that time. There's no modern uh, communication telephone. So how could somebody know something that had just taken place in faraway Rome? Unless you say that was, you know, Ruch HaKodesh. So they wrote down the time and place to see what would happen if that's the time that he was assassinated in Rome. And now they switch over um, to the story of Petronius. When they saw that the Romans were getting closer, go and greet the Romans, but peacefully. And when this was discovered that they're bringing an idol, because Petronius was escorting an idol, he was trying to delay it, so all the big shots in Yerushalayim went to the Roman guy, to Petronius, who was a good guy. And they said, because we'd rather die than allow this to happen in Beis HaMikdash. They were begging and crying to the Shliach. The Shliach is the Shliach of the Emperor. It's Petronius. And the Shliach said, don't pray to me, pray to God. You're God. When he got to the bigger cities of Palestine, whole throngs of people came out to, to the Romans. The Roman general, Petronius, said, That's a lot of people. His informants told him, These people are not coming to kill you, but they're coming to greet you and beg. When he would come to one of the Jewish cities, he saw that in all the Jewish cities, like in Megillus Esther, that there were uh, Avelis meetings held everywhere in the streets. By the time he got to near Jerusalem, he got the letter that Galigula was, was killed and it was all over. Whereupon he immediately destroyed the idol. That became a yuntum called Caligula Day. So um, now, if it, so again, so we just had Caligula Day. Um, if you're interested in this, this is the language of Miguel's Tainus. If you want to find the, the details, you go to uh, you look up Philo of Alexandria and you read the Flaccus and his embassy to Gaius, especially the letter. If anybody's interested at in all, I couldn't do justice to it because it would take a half hour to read the letter. It's a very good letter. Uh, that he wrote to Caligula. And uh, you'll read Embassy to Guys and Flaccus by, by um, what do you call it? By Philo. If you're even more interested, you can read the part in Josephus. He describes this also. And uh, we have a rare case where what we what we find in historical literature of 2,000 years ago coincides with what you find in rabbinical literature in the form of Megillus Tynus Day. So again, uh, so you see 22 Shvat. Is uh, was once upon a time a chash of a day on the Jewish calendar, and um, once again I thank the uh, Rotenbergs for being the sponsors today. Hope we'll find one later in the week. And with that, I bid you a good day. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com